Welcome to SaaS Stories, hosted by Joanna Inch of Hat Media. On this show, we speak to tech and SaaS business owners and leaders about their journey in the SaaS world. Tune in as we share success stories and discuss ideas to take your SaaS business to the next level. So let's dive in. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of SaaS Stories. This week, I am super excited to be joined by a special guest all the way from Copenhagen, uh, Mr. Lars Gronegaard. Lars, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Joanna. I'm super excited to be here. And yeah, Australia, Denmark, that's quite some distance there. <laughs> quite the distance. I do have hopes that I will visit one day. I've been told that Denmark, especially in the winter time, is like a winter wonderland. So it's definitely on my bucket list. Um, I'm a big fan of the snow and I cannot wait. Yep. Summers are great here too. <laughs> uh, if you're in Australia, that's your winter then. Yes, yes. I'd rather, um, I wouldn't mind escaping our summers sometimes. They've been very wet lately. So mm. maybe the next one. Um, so Lars is the CEO and co-founder of Dream Data, a leading B2B revenue attribution platform that helps build, repeat and scale success. Now, if you are a marketer in the B2B space, similar to myself, I am sure that you've had many, many challenges proving um, the revenue uh, through, uh, you know, a lot of the tools that you use. So I'm very, very curious to learn more about Dream Data at Lars and, um, you know, some of the stories that you will share with me today. But let's start with the very first question. Um, tell me about yourself. Yes. So uh, as you said, I'm a co-founder of Dream Data. Um, before that, uh, I came out of product management. So I worked at a successful SaaS scale-up in Copenhagen called Trustpilot. Uh, it's also active in Australia. Uh, so it's a review platform. Um, so I ran product there together with uh, one of the other co-founders in the company, Ole. So we were running product and tech together there. So that's my background. Before that, I have um, a history in consulting. So uh, way back in sort of the early 2000s, we founded a UX uh, consulting company in Copenhagen before anybody was ever, I don't even know if anybody knew what UX was back then. Um, so we came up with this um, company, which was a consulting company helping, especially like big Danish corporates figure out sort of uh, why were people not using all those magnificent solutions that they were building. And you know, sometimes it was because nobody actually wanted them. And sometimes yeah. because they couldn't figure out how to use them. And like there were many reasons. And we we came up with this sort of mix of research and sort of conceptual design as, as a discipline. Like we we didn't invent it. Other people invented it in other places at the same time, but it was um we were definitely at the forefront of, of that evolution here. Yeah. Yeah. And I love what you just said there. I mean, I've heard this quote so many times in my experience working with SaaS founders. It's, you know, uh, usually it takes some fantastic, creative and great minds to create this product. But when it comes to going to market, it's like, well, we'll just build it and they'll come, which hardly ever happens. Um, never in this day and age, that's for sure. Um, so tell me the story of how you launched Dream Data. Um, you know, what gap did you see in the market? How did you come up with the idea? What's the story there? Yeah, I, I think we can maybe go back a little bit to, uh, just excite me when you say this, when you build it, they will come because it's such a fundamental <laughs> flaw that many people make. 
And I think our thesis when we were building the company was maybe a little bit the other way around that, uh, you know, if they come, we will build it. And I think that's a much more healthy way of, of, of inventing or sort of building an early stage startup. Or if you're in a product organization and you're sort of taking on a new big project of a new product uh, area, start with figuring out uh, if they'll actually come and then build it. Don't go the other way around. Um, of course, sometimes you're lucky and it works. But I would say we we started uh, Dream Data from our experiences at, at Trustpilot. And really what was, was going on there was we had a very successful go-to-market. It was sort of a mix of uh, uh, outbound sort of sales-led. We also had a product-led motion. So we had this huge... Um, consumer-oriented uh, review website, but that was also driving a lot of um, business owners into our sales funnel. And of course, we had a marketing team as well, and they were also doing a lot of activities. Uh, mm -hmm. So we had, you can say, many things working to try to drive uh, sales, really, and revenue for the SaaS business. And it, it was working, so that was great. Uh, but the problem was when we wanted to optimize it, let's say we wanted to grow faster than we were growing or more efficiently, we, it, it became a problem because nobody really knew how it was working, apart from the fact that customers were signing deals, they were paying, that was great, they were renewing, oh, that was great. But if we wanted to, say, grow faster or more efficiently, we needed to know you know, what is it that actually works? Is it this product part? Is it some of the marketing campaigns? Is it the outbound sales part? Or is it some mix of it? Um, I think it's a pretty fundamental question that lots of people grapple with if they are in this uh, type of uh, SaaS B2B setting. <laughs> because sure. um, really what's going on is that you have a lot of, you're going to market in a very sort of modern way. So you sort of, um, you know, using lots of tools to make it more efficient and you're servicing your customers in many different channels before they become customers. It's all good, but it creates this data problem that uh, there's no place to go for the truth about the customer. Of course, there's a truth in the CRM system. That's the sales truth. We had you know great tracking data about what was going on in the product. That was also the truth about the customer and marketing had their truth about uh, the customer, which was what, uh, you know, the Google Ads um, analytics set and like different analytics products that ads providers were, were giving them. But the unified sort of the sum of all that didn't exist. And we needed it because we, of course, you know, as a person, I'm a kind of person. I want to make things better. Uh, I want to make things more efficient, effective. Uh, so, hey, we had to, we had to do this, but um, there wasn't really a product that solved it for us. Um, and we, we looked for products and then we ended up saying, okay, we'll just, there's, many, there's a lot of products that help you move data into data warehouse. So we did that. And then, you know, we had some great data engineers. So we set them to work on it and said, okay, we want the data put together like this. They put the data together and then we could do these beautiful analysis that we wanted saying, okay, this campaign actually doesn't work. And okay, it's great that we have all these signups for the free product, but it actually takes one year before they become customers. Can we make it more effective? Mm -hmm. And Yes, it's great sales. You're doing uh, a lot of outbound sales. But if you were focusing on these types of uh, free signups, we would have more success and the whole thing could be more effective. So we had lots of great findings. And we were thinking, okay, this is a fundamental problem 
it doesn't seem like something that is so special per company. Like we were using Salesforce and we were using mm. segment.com for tracking. We had HubSpot and some marketing automation product. We had like everything about our company that Trustpilot was quite normal, you know. So why wasn't there a product that could fix this for us? Um, and that was basically what the, the thesis, the founding thesis of, of Dream Data as a company. And then we went sort of the, if they come, we will build it path. So we went out and tried to find people that actually wanted this product. So we didn't, we had, we had sort of done this internal project of building. So we knew it could be done. And we had good ideas that, okay, you can build a product. I think that's always a good thing to know. Um, and we knew that it was sort of useful because we liked it. Uh, and, and we were borderline the sort of type of people that would be using it. Um, but what about other people out there? It's always mm -hmm. the most dangerous assumption when, when founding a company or building a product is that somebody will want the product that you're building. I think that's the most risky assumption at all. Yeah. Uh, and building it to figure it out is just a very, very expensive way of learning because it like our product, I would say to a real product probably took a couple of years before we had a real product. Uh, before that was various prototypes, but let's say we had sat down for two years and built and then discovered that nobody actually wanted this fantastic thing we dreamed of, right? Um, so we went the other path and said, okay, if they come, we'll build it. We went out, tried to sell it based on, um, you know, slide decks and presentations. And, and then when we had some people saying, okay, we actually want this, we said, okay, um, could you tell us like more formally that you want it, that, you know, if you get something that's useful, you'll at least pay for it. Yeah. You've got commitment. And then we built something for them and we did this a few times. And like, that was a, the path to a, a very early product, which was more of a prototype, just getting these customers to actually commit to paying for it. And also seeing if they did use it once they paid for it. And like, I think that's a healthy path. Um, yes. For sure. <laughs> I mean, that's every SaaS founder's nightmare, you know, build it, spend two years building it, you know, go past MVP level, nobody comes. But yeah, no, I think in your case, uh, there's definitely a market for it. I mean, I've been I've been in the digital marketing space for 15 years. I've used the likes of Google Analytics, HubSpot, Salesforce. I've seen what they can do. The DAS is quite powerful, but um Again, I think when you have so many, uh, you know, different apps and campaigns talking to each other, it can get a little bit lost. You can kind of lose a sense of well, what's really working here and what's not. Um, so how is stream data different from, say, HubSpot or Salesforce? Like, how does it take it one step further and um, fix some of those gaps? I think the fundamental thing is that each of these products have their own sort of silo of truth. And our product, the, the fundamental idea of the product is to take those silos and sort of create one unified uh, data platform out of it so that you can do these, that the type of analytics that you need to be, be more efficient. I think we also have, there is, we also, I would say at Trustpilot, we saw other things that you wanted to do with this data platform. Because say, for instance, if you want to, do brilliant retargeting or like audience mm -hmm. building, or if you want to get Google or LinkedIn to optimize their ads, you basically have to have this data set. Like 
we have, um, let's say you want uh, LinkedIn can receive information about who actually converted later, like who actually became business. And if you can figure out how to tell LinkedIn that, then they can say, oh, uh, then we'll serve more of this type of ads. So they can do sort of machine learning and advanced oh. stats, and then they can optimize yeah. ads if you give them that data. Um, so there's a lot of things you can do with this type of data platform that's all sort of pointing in this direction of uh, making all of your go-to-market more efficient. Uh, so I think that's the, the fundamental difference is this holistic perspective on the customer that we 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 insist like on being able to bring in all data. Like some of the data is very easy to bring in because if we have like we have integrations that pull in the data, mm -hmm. sometimes you have to do uploads of the data. But there's nothing stopping us from having a complete view of the customer so that when you're saying, okay, did this campaign actually work? Then you can say, okay, yes. Like some of the people that we hit with this campaign, they actually became sales qualified leads or they became mm. pipeline or we sold to them. Um, and the other way around, you also find that some of the campaigns, we, we do that ourselves all the time. Like we find campaigns that don't work. So we try a new campaign. We try it because we think it will work. And then we look and... Yeah. You know, if, if the idea is that this should be helping us drive, say, new leads into our top of funnel and nothing is happening, then we'll just close mm -hmm. it down and get another idea. Yeah, no, that sounds good. And I, I'm, I'm not going to name any names, but I've heard a lot of clients say, you know, with data, a lot of things don't integrate as well. So I think integration is key. I'm glad to hear, you know, that that's kind of a big part of dream data. I think also um, just reading the data, I've heard a lot of people say, um, oh God, I need a PhD in this tool to actually understand what it's telling me here. Um, yeah. So even though it can be used really well to create, to capture data, it's just about, you know, understanding it in an easy way. A lot of people are visual as well. So maybe a visual representation with the data can um, is something I hear about a lot of these traditional platforms struggle with. Yeah, I think for us, the, I think if we can at all create these situations where you actually don't have to do anything, so if you set it up, you connect the data, and then we help you optimize. Like we have a few cases where it works, and we'd like to build more and more of that, where you don't have to, you know, sit every day and compare campaigns, go to your ads manager, disable the campaign, invest one another. It's a it's a lot of work. Um, yeah. And if you can if you can reduce some of that work by making some of these efficiencies happen automatically, it's great. Like if you can put it on sort of autopilot. Uh, that's perfect. Yeah, that's a marketer's dream. <laughs> Everybody wants that, right? Absolutely. Um, so you've told us the story of how you came up with Dream Data and how you launched. I guess the next question really is, how did you scale and grow? Like what has been some campaigns that have been instrumental to your success? I think we were, I, I can say one of the things we did, which was instrumental to us, that we were originally two co-founders that came from Trustpilot. And then as one of the companies that we were trying to say, okay, will they actually come? We met another Danish uh, Copenhagen startup. And, and in that startup, there was a guy called Stefan, who was the, the head of marketing. And we convinced him to join. And I think 
given that the product very much sort of targets go-to-market people and marketers in particular, having someone like Stefan on board was instrumental to, to sort of the early success of the company because he has uh, a much, he is essentially the target person uh, for a lot of our communications. Yeah. So having somebody who is a target person um, helps a lot when you are communicating with people. Um, so I think that that has been instrumental. Getting getting convincing Stefan to join as a co-founder was very important. Mm -hmm. So it's like if it had just been me and Ola as the founding team, I think it would have been a different situation. Yeah. So I think that that was very um, crucial for us to to be a team that was that had a sort of fundamental understanding of of, of the, the people that we're selling to. I think that's a a, a key thing. Um, and then I would say overall, um, we we had a few things along the path that I think worked really well for us. At some point, um, we got to a place where the product became so automated that we could offer a free trial of the product that we could sort of say, hey, you, you don't take a word for it. Come in, connect mm -hmm. your data, see that it works. Um, that was very important because it just took a lot of proof building from the sales team away. Now they can say, okay, you don't have to take my word for it. Go in, connect your data, take a look. You can see that it joins, you can see that it works. So that was very fundamental. And then the other thing was that Stefan did a lot of things in the early um, days of the company, tried many different things. Uh, we tried many different ways of sort of like what would be our most successful channel. We tried outbound sales. Um, we did some paid, of course. And, but at one point, Stefan came and said, okay, we're going to try um, just getting our sales team, which was two people, plus myself, plus a, a couple of marketing people. We'll all try to see if we can get, I think, to half a million views on LinkedIn in three months or something. Okay. You know? So he he made a competition to try to say, okay, let's let's try to post on LinkedIn, be very active and see what happens. And I think the 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 thesis was there's a lot of marketing marketers on LinkedIn. They yeah. spend a lot of time there. So if we can connect with them and communicate with them there, it's it's going to be good for our company. So we tried that. Uh, and and that worked out really well. We had like a few posts that got picked up by sort of major influencers in the space. Okay. And that actually drove real uh, interest for our product uh, and signups for the free product and deals in the pipeline and eventually close one business. So that was also a very fundamental thing. So this mix of having a marketer on board when you're selling to marketers, I think that was good. Um, LinkedIn and, the, and a free product and a free trial version of the product was very important. Got it, got it. So I'm just going to summarize this. Um, all right, first step. Have someone on your team that understands the target audience. Maybe they are the target audience or they used to be. They're now on your team. They can shed that, you know, those insights, those pain points, those challenges. Um, because if you have someone that doesn't understand that target audience, you, you know, it, they, there's a lot of guesswork there. Like what message do they want to see? What content do we need to create for them? Um, but yeah, de definitely having that resource is uh, quite um, quite handy, I think. So because you have a really good understanding of who your niche is and what their challenges are and how you can uh, address those. 
Um, second thing, the trial, that's a very interesting one. I know a lot of SaaS companies do offer trials. I don't think a lot of them have as, as much success with the trials. And, and I always question, you know, the reason for that. Is it because the trial is too short? Is it because, you know, during the trial process, you're not actually teaching, um, you know, your clients on how to use the software as well as you could be? Um, those are always questions I, I, I ask around the free trials. I mean, what was your experience with the, with the free trials? Did a lot of people kind of convert? Was there a lot of questions around, well, how do I use the product? Um, I think we definitely ended up uh, helping people a lot. It was also, you know, mm -hmm. early days for the product. So we had to do a lot of helping. Uh, some of our salespeople got to become very knowledgeable of the product so that they could actually help people um yeah. we also had to because like some of the values that you get from our product especially if you're sort of like mm, i am the marketer we made some new business what was my impact on that like sometimes mm. that takes some time to get to that answer because your impact probably happened 12 6 12 18 months before that yeah. So in some cases, like getting to that answer takes a long time. So I think we have had to learn how to, how do you in the trial process also, it's also the sales process, sort of turn that around and say, hey, you're running campaigns right now. What's happening from those campaigns? Okay, you're getting some clicks, you're getting some views, but are you getting contact? Are these contacts going to the CRM? Are they engaging the way you want? Like, there's a lot of things that with this type of product, you can get early value. Mm. But sometimes the things that people come in and ask for is something that they can only have after a year because it takes so long to collect enough data to to answer that question. But it doesn't mean that the early value I personally feel is much more val real value because the other one is so, sort of like, yeah, see, I did something important. It's like, yeah, of course, <laughs> great. But really, like what I want is something that says I'm doing something right now. Can I figure out if that's good or bad? Can I get yeah. rid of the bad stuff or the the things that don't really do any good for the company and reinvest like, that type of early engagement or early value from the product? I think is much more important. So we had to sort of like, how do you educate the customer on this? So there was a lot of sales conversations. So that a free trial doesn't mean no sales. Yeah, I think probably the opposite. I think for us it meant more successful sales, but it wasn't like uh, oh. You want a free trial here, and then I call you back in a month, and then I can close the deal. Yeah, that, that's not how it worked for us. It was a lot of investment, and I think that's what people sometimes discover that that investment is not, you know, it's too big for some companies. They they mm -hmm. they figure out that hey, if I sell without the trial, I can actually close an equal amount of deals or slightly fewer deals, but I can process more. So the close rate goes down a bit, but I can process more. So it's more efficient. And then I only onboard the ones that did buy. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, I, I'm not saying that free trial is uh, sort of a, the perfect uh, solution for other companies. I think it depends so much on what you're doing. I think we have had, because it's a fairly complex data product, a lot of people didn't initially trust us that we would be able to do what we said. So I think being able to prove that to people was quite important. And then mm -hmm. the other thing is setting some realistic um, goals or 
what can you actually see in a trial? Like if you trial the product for 14 days or two, four weeks, you will not see the truth about the deals you closed because we won't have enough data to tell you that. And also some parts of the product does require someone to sit with you and configure it so that it you know, matches your world. I think setting a right expectation around the trial was important. Uh, yeah. So I, I, for, for me, I think the most fundamental thing is just saying that we did a lot of things. They worked for us. In, in, in general, people, you shouldn't assume that it will work for other people. You should always have an open mindset and say, hey, I'm going to try something and see if it works for me. Just like posting on LinkedIn was super important for us. But let's say you're selling to medical professionals. I don't think that that's a good path for you, right? No. Because they're not living on LinkedIn. But, uh, you know, so so you then you have to engage somewhere else where those people, where you can build an audience. Um, and sometimes that place doesn't exist. Then maybe the right thing for you is say, oh, that place doesn't exist. Then I'll build that place. I have a friend. She's building a company in the legal tech space. And... You know, she doesn't, they tried this LinkedIn tactic. It just didn't work for them because legal professionals are not on LinkedIn or they at least are very active. So she went around and said, okay, let's build a community for internal legal counsel because that doesn't exist. And and now she's hugely successful doing that because a lot of, like, of course, people want community. They want a place to talk about their work and like how to do it better. Yeah. So that was a good path for her. Where for us, I think building a, a community for marketers is super tough because there's like huge like pavilion for instance or like there's these huge paid communities for marketers like you don't want to compete with that it's a product in itself yeah uh, yeah for sure it already exists um no no linkedin definitely the right place i mean it's something i've experienced uh great success with working in the world of b2b um i love that you say as well you know managing expectations so obviously in your case you know, if you had offered like a 14 day trial, that never would have worked because as you said, it's not enough time to get data. I mean, uh, in the space of B2B, especially for enterprise clients, um, the B2B sales cycle can go anywhere from six up to 24 months, right? So the campaigns that you're running, um, there's, you know, it takes time and there's a lot of data that you need to collect um, to learn from. Um, So, yeah, I I think definitely that expectation is important. One thing I always do with my campaigns is um, I kind of do a really deep dive of the data every 90 days or three months. I feel like that's the sweet spot. I think if you do it any earlier, you don't have enough data. But if you do it any later, then you're kind of missing opportunities there. What would you say is your sweet spot for, for analyzing? I mean, obviously, we, we analyze data on a daily basis, but really taking a deep dive, what would be that time frame? So, again, I think it's so individual. Like, what is the spend you're looking at? We're a relatively small company. Our spend isn't massive. Um, so it means that we have to look, we have to collect data for some time before it makes any sense to look at it. Uh, we do look at things earlier than 90 days. I think yeah. what we do is we have, we'll look at um, different sort of proxies or things that we think indicate that the campaign will work. Let's say if I expect it to, at some point, drive revenue in the end, I'm not going to wait until I see business closing from the campaign. 
But if no, let's say the campaign is driving traffic to my website, that is, of the, I'm just taking that as an example, like a cat, it's also probably the simplest thing to look at. Something is, you, you, you're buying people to come to your website. Now, the first thing you can look at is, are they at all sort of, before they convert or do anything, you can look at whether they are meeting your ICP criteria. Are they mm. the right type of companies? Are they the right size of companies? Are they from the right regions? Is it sort of, is there any potential in what you're doing? So if you have something that can tell you also before people convert, if you can just based on say IP lookup or something, you'll find, okay, are they a good fit for us, these companies? Mm. Um, that's an early indicator of whether this is going to be helpful at all. And you can look at that immediately. Let's say you're, you know, you are only in Europe and you're getting a ton of American traffic. Well, maybe that's a, an opportunity and you should be looking mm -hmm. at it. Um, but but uh, there are other cases like you are driving a lot of consumer traffic and your target is B2B uh, yeah. manufacturing companies. And that's not what's coming in. You're just seeing a lot of individual consumers without any company association. You know, so it's bad traffic. So I think if you have a way of measuring quality of traffic, you do that immediately. Then you look at the leads. So the actual sort of like whatever way they convert on your website, are they a good fit? Uh, do they convert in reasonable numbers? And then now you're now you will be going into three and six months. Do these leads actually convert to pipeline? Um, or other meaningful places in your sort of pipeline process? But the, I, for us, the gold standard is do they become sales qualified leads? Mm. Um, that's the gold standard. And then after a long time, we'll look at do they actually convert to new business? But that can take, like you say, from an initial campaign to that type of result can be six, 12 months, not unusual, yeah. even for a company like ours. Um, Absolutely. No, you're spot on. I think that it is very individual. I think I initially got my 90 days from, I read an interesting book by John Dewar called Measure What Matters. And he's the brain behind Google Intel. So I thought I'm, I'm going to follow this structure. And a lot of the times it works well. Um, but at the same time, I've definitely experienced instances where, yes, you're right, it is very individual. We probably should have looked at the data earlier, in some cases later. Um, so absolutely. And I think um, that kind of brings me on to the next question really about, okay, so you know um, what you've had success with um, in the world of marketing, as well as, you know, obviously having insights from your co-founder. Um, what were some of the challenges that you came across when trying to reach B2B marketers? I mean, you mentioned you know, trust as being one of them, maybe reluctance to, if we, if, is this going to work? What were some of the other challenges that you faced? I think in, in terms of, I think we've, like I said, been quite good at connecting with that audience. Um, the founding team, we probably have different problems um, <laughs> because for Stefan, of course, who has sort of a natural understanding of the audience that mm. doesn't exist for us. So understanding the audience, how, how do marketers think? I think that's uh, that has been maybe not a challenge, but at least sort of a learning process for us. Mm -hmm. 
I would say sometimes that the one of the things we we can be struggling with is this sort of like is the engagement um is it negative or positive is it um is it reactive or proactive are you looking to sort of defend your position and say hey i'm spending money i'm doing a great job give me a product that helps me prove that i'm doing well versus yeah. sort of a person who's coming and saying hey i'm doing a great job i need a product that can help me do it even better and that i think is a fundamental sort of um still a challenge for us to to steer that conversation because if you are in this defensive position well you know there is a huge risk that when you take in a product like ours it's actually going to show that some of what you do is not working because that's natural <laughs> but yeah. if you haven't been measuring like you have you describe a really good process you have a structured approach you do this i think it's a, a great like whether to measure after one month or three months or six. You know, mm. the main thing is having a principle that says, I have a process, I'm structured, I measure, I improve, I make decisions based, I, you know, but some people don't have that and they still have a feeling that they're doing a great job and they, they are probably also doing a relatively good job, but they could be doing a way better job, right? Uh, and I think that conversation sort of like, how do you go from this defensive, like, prove that I'm doing a good job because you know the risk is they'll find things that are not good and then they will not like the product yeah. as opposed to saying okay hey whatever job you're doing now you can improve for sure everybody can improve everybody can do better uh, our product helps you do that like changing that uh, conversation I think is uh, complicated Absolutely. I think definitely as a marketer, if you're open to, um, you know, being aware of things that you've done that may have not worked and, you know, being kind of open to taking that constructive criticism and just, you know, having the tools to then use that to change what you're doing and make it more effective is great. I think um, a lot of marketers might, you know, be running campaigns that are not very effective. And they think that they usually start exploring software and think, oh, the software is going to fix everything. It's going to fix everything. But in, in most cases, it doesn't because, you know, you haven't actually addressed the key points and, you know, the, the software is actually helping you to. Um, so they've got those expectations of the software, but mm. really it's, you know, it, it takes a little bit more work than that. It's a lot of work. Um, and I think that another thing about the sort of our uh, target group as marketers is that it's just in general marketers in the current economic environment are, are challenged. Um, mm -hmm. So that's, you, you can say for, for our product, which helps marketers be more effective. Okay, great. It's in that sense, it's a good product for the, for the sort of times we're in. But on the other hand, um, it requires marketers who are able to sell that internally in the company yeah. uh, because marketers are in general being challenged uh, by CFOs or uh, if you have a strong ops team. So they're challenged. And if you are not able to sort of bring a kind of the CFO type of argumentation to the table or arguments to the table, then you're challenged, right? You're getting, you know, budgets are cut people are fired mm. left and right it's like uh so that is that's a challenge for us like just bringing a sale from from say you know through our sales pipeline which can take 60 to like 30 to 60 days like yeah 
it's not on it, like it has not been unusual to see people leave the company in that process right yeah and in you know that 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 is challenging i think we we of course try to help our people who are interested in buying with helping them make that argument and help because fundamentally we believe that marketing is great like as a go to market tactic you need marketing in there like you can't like most markets like some markets you can sell your way through uh, using outbound but the people we talk to they can't like they need marketing as a component and a core component in that go to market so fundamentally we believe marketing is great and it should be there and we mm -hmm. want to help these like the, we want to help the marketers stay there and have that impact in the go to market of the companies um, so we try to help but it is challenging at, at these times um and we also see that in sort of uh, retention of, of customers that, you know, if people have not fully adopted the product or, mm. you know, even it, it can be down to like, the, it, it's a position of the marketer in, in the organization. If you're not strongly positioned as someone who is a key component in creating revenue for the organization, it's just super risky. And, you know, that's that that then reflects on, on our business of course also yeah yeah definitely a challenge a lot of marketers face I think um yeah. and yeah I guess when you have the CFO looking at the bottom line and saying well you know most of this came as a result of sales not marketing I don't see the data yeah. there and of course the, yeah. the budget cuts happen in the marketing department not the sales department in that case um but we all know there has to be you know yeah. marketing has to have been uh, key to kind of getting the growth that was that has yeah. been seen and, in the company. And it's really not about. I, I think it's in in some cases at least these CFOs and CEOs and whatever they actually like the idea of marketing and they would like to invest and continue mm. the investment. But if you're not delivering a strong proof that it actually is part of the revenue machine of the company, that's in the end where they will end up cutting. And it's not the, the problem about cutting spend in sort of these like marketing. You can also say if you have product-led growth, if you cut these things, the immediate impact on your numbers is great. It's like, oh, my CAC to new revenue just, you know, fantastic. It's like, uh, you know, we spent zero on marketing this month and we closed, I don't know, 500,000 euros of new business or dollars of new business. Fantastic. But uh, like that... 100,000 euros you cut in marketing spend that was actually going to drive the business of, you know, next quarter or even the quarter yeah. after that. So the exactly. impact is much later. And if you don't have a way for, for you to demonstrate that to the CFO, like whoever is the decision maker here, uh, it, you know, it's very bad for the company. It's also, mm -hmm. like, of course, it's bad for, 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 for me as a marketer that I don't get to do the job I love, but it's also super bad for the company, which is going to be challenging growth six months from now or yeah. nine months from now, because everything that was going to build that, you know, flow of sales just disappeared, right? That's a really good point, actually. I think, um, you know, a lot of people, when, when a marketing campaigns are launched, they're kind of expecting instant results. And last one Very question good. I've been dying to ask you throughout this whole podcast. It's kind of um, a selfish question because I, it's something I, as a B2B marketer, struggle with. Um, 
attributing revenue to campaigns um, and specifically when the target audience is contacts that have been previous opportunities but have gone cold um, you know, previously there's been campaigns that have run on them and, you know, all of a sudden if they were cold, we then re-engage them, they convert, but we still have that issue of, um, you know, people saying, well, you know, I, I knew these people from way back and this is why they've converted and kind of stories like that. Um, but just one in a million stories, I'm sure a lot of marketers have. So what advice do you have for B2B marketers like me who struggle to attribute revenue to the campaigns they're running? Well, I, I think it sounds like uh, you're doing a lot of the right things, but it, it's basically having you know, I think one is insist on on having a way of knowing what actually happened. So mm -hmm. I think that's quite fundamental. So every time that you can measure and and have data around this, just make sure that you get it. So collect the data so that it can be analyzed, so that you can know what worked and what didn't work. I think, of course, if you are in settings where there's fundamental distrust between sales and marketing. That's yeah. never good. Uh, um, I think it's about building trust between uh, the teams and and really sort of acknowledging that this is a joint project. It isn't like sales versus marketing. Everybody's mm. trying to, to, to achieve the same thing, which is, you know, make the company grow, close good sales that have become good customers and like, companies that enjoy and the product you're building. So I think it's really like the fundamental thing there is probably not 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 about the tooling or about the product. It's more about sort of you know create a, a an atmosphere and and an environment of collaboration between the teams. I think that's super important. So make yeah. sure that everybody understands that hey, you know, let's look at some. If you have a way of inspecting the full customer journey, um, like all the data you have take a look at some of it and say, okay, so, well, we won this deal. Let's go back in time and see what actually did happen. Okay. Yes. You know, a lot of companies like our own is like, there will always be sales such as because you can't really buy the product without talking to sales. So they'll always be there. And there, there can be, you know, early sales outreach. We've done that too, but that doesn't mean that, uh, that that was what created the deal. I think you need to look at, you, you need, you need a way of having all the data, of the entire customer journey, you can look at it. Uh, so I think that's really start by looking at some of these journeys together. Sometimes um, you might also have depends on the size of the deals you're closing. If they if you're closing large deals in low volume, do sort of a post mortem uh, of of one deal and say what actually did happen, right? So that everybody can agree that yes, we reached out to this customer in our you know outbound. Uh, motion two years ago, then nothing happened. Then they were hit by these campaigns, and there was a period of sort of activity. And then you, you know, mm. then everybody will agree that, well, okay, maybe this early uh, outreach was also part of it. You know, nobody should object to saying that. Of course, that was also this brand building, and if you have good people doing outreach, that also helps put you on the map with customers. Then you have later on campaign comes in this kind of intervention that puts you back on, on the on the map. Maybe they are the right place and time to buy uh, the type of product you're selling. Uh, yeah, I think the fundamental thing is make sure that everybody agrees that 
it's a team play. I think yeah. that's so fundamental. Um, and if that's not the case, then try to, you know, get to that place. Right. Um, and I think that typically goes, it, it, it's both directions, right? Everybody has to move a bit and realize that, okay, I'm, this is a joint effort when we're closing deals. Yeah. Everyone has a job to do. I yeah. think that's really good advice because now that I think about it, you know, a lot of the successful campaigns we've seen have had one thing in common and that's sales and marketing alignment. They've been yeah. collaborating from the get-go. They've been aligned from the start. Uh, they have a really good relationship. They understand the role that they need to play. Um, so a lot of the campaigns I run for clients are around account-based marketing. So we actually really need sales involvement in those. It's crucial to yeah. get sales alignment because um, the knowledge that they have on the target accounts uh, is very much needed. Um, so I find that, yeah, you can't have a successful account-based marketing campaign un unless you have alignment between those two teams. No, it's so fundamental. And I think it's if you can find like if it doesn't exist then you can find sort of you know proof that it should exist so like mm -hmm. inspect individual customer journeys or let's say you are doing some kind of abm outreach but and sometimes you can see the effect directly of that i'm reaching out to these companies via some maybe a linkedin campaign and now they're on a website then if yeah. you can go to sales and say hey look i did the campaign here now they're on the website now it's time to call them mm -hmm. uh that kind of just just things that where you're collaborating about the deal really yeah. like if you can if there is this sort of like oh we're not really a, a team then if you can you know pass the ball to the other players in a really nice way it's also good mm. like hey look at this beautiful list of companies that i just targeted really. <laughs> and now they're maybe ready like and you know so if you can serve up some some really good uh, uh opportunities for the sales team i think it's yeah. just thinking about ways where you can make it obvious that the collaboration is good for the company. I think that's. Uh... Yeah, absolutely. I, I think this is what I love about account-based marketing as well. I mean, I, and I have done a lot of traditional marketing back in the days, but I have come across, you know, instances where, yeah, there's people on the website, they're downloading content. Um, however, when sales gets on the phone with them, they're like, hey, marketing, these people aren't qualified. They don't have the budgets. They're not from the right company. Um, so with account-based marketing, you don't have that problem because you're yeah. already saying these are the accounts we're going to target. And it's all about getting engagement, collaborating, aligning, and following up at the right time. And, and the case that you mentioned, whereas like say content downloads, I think it's also just super valuable feedback from sales. I say, hey, you gave me these leads. They're not good. It's okay. Then yeah. what what would it take to make them good? Okay, maybe mm -hmm. like weed out the ones that are sort of non-ICP. Like only give me the ICP ones. Okay. Maybe they're good leads. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're, you know, because they, you know, they are, you know, at a random stage in a buying process. They, they might not be looking for your product because they're just downloading content. Maybe mm -hmm. they're good leads. Maybe they are not. So if sales says, oh, they were great leads. Okay, now you're working together. If they say, they're still not good leads, they say, you know what? I'm going to hold onto these leads for a little while longer the next time. I'm going to try yeah. to do whatever my idea is, how to sort of upgrade them to, you know, so that I give something useful to sales. Yeah. Uh, so just, it is really uh, sometimes taking that kind of uh, harsh feedback of saying, your work, <laughs> what you gave me was shit. 
okay <laughs> let me try to let me try to improve on it um, yeah um, yeah. And sometimes, sometimes if the collaboration isn't great, then the feedback can come in sort of a in a bad way. But um, at least if there's feedback, that's uh, that's a path forward. That's a good point, actually. I think knowing when to pass them on to sales, and that needs to be data driven. So you could because I've seen instances where sales has called people upon downloading an asset, and that has either gone horribly wrong or actually really well. And it, but it's again, it's so so individual to the company, but you don't know unless you have that data. So I think, um, yeah, that's a crucial metric to measure. Um, let's talk a little bit about the changing consumer. I don't know how much you've noticed in the space. I've been obsessed with this since the pandemic, how the B2B um, consumers have changed. I think what we're seeing nowadays quite a lot is, you know, the way people shop, they prefer to do all of their own research. They prefer a self-serve model when they, you know, visit a website. Um, I even find that people are generally 60% of the way through the buyer journey before they get in touch with sales. What are some things that you have seen, some behaviors that have been possibly impacted by the pandemic that have um, changed the consumer or the target audience a little bit? I think that what you mentioned there is, is definitely, that is very real. I think it was something that was, it, it was uh, something that was moving and happening also before the pandemic, but the pandemic really accelerated it. Yeah. So a lot of companies were forced online. They were forced to sort of move to a more digital sales process, offer up more asset, like more information for the buyers. And it just accelerated this desire from the buyer side to be more in control of the buying process. So it accelerated that. Um, I think that that's very much so. It was it was already happening before, but you know there was a period of a, a lot of things that people were usually doing, like you know field sales, just mm. work right, uh, physical meetups, a lot of uh, tactics that people were doing for stop working and meant okay, we'll have to put something else in place. And a lot of buyers realized, okay, I can actually buy these very complex products without having a salesperson visit my office and just you know do some research. Uh, book a demo or book a sales call and then buy it. I think it it accelerated that. So the sort of uh, if, if you think of, I mean, in the B two C space, it was has been like twenty twenty five years yeah. <laughs> earlier, right? In the sense that a lot of sales were uh, fully automated in that space. Like you you know, people. Course, still go to shops for for that experience, but a mm. lot of a lot of revenue in the B two C space is generated without human intervention at all. People just research, buy, it happens, right? And I think yeah. that is happening. That way of of going to market is coming to B two B, and the um, pandemic definitely accelerated that. Mm. Absolutely, I think another thing as well. I mean, you make a good point there. It was happening before the pandemic as well, and I think. Possibly a reason for that is um, the millennial generation. They, I think I read a statistic that said that in about one or two years, they're going to make up 75% of the workforce. 
And a lot of them are actually in decision-making roles. And it's definitely a generation that grew up with technology. They're more used to doing their own research. They're more used that, you know, they can use technology uh, a little bit better to find what they're looking for. We spoke about how you came up with Dream Data, the, the challenges that you had initially, um, some of the amazing insights that you've given us on, uh, you know, reasons for why you've been successful as well, which has been incredible. We spoke about how the pandemic has accelerated um, the ch you know, changes in the way people shop and buy, the consumers. Um, I wanted to focus on something a little bit more positive, and I wanted to ask you personally, what are you looking forward to in the future? I know at the moment it's a little bit, you know, uh, there's a lot of negative energy out there. I, I want to hear something positive. <laughs> I, I think, like, uh, in, in general, I think uh, from a business standpoint, of course, I'm, I'm looking forward to things like quieting down a little bit. I think that'll be great. Um, I think from our business standpoint, I'm looking forward to offering more of these solutions where um, sort of auto optimization. I, I'm very excited about that, where we're offering something where you, instead of constantly having to monitor um, and make decisions and implement, then you can sort of set something up that works forever, uh, more or less. Uh, so like auto optimization options for, for different app platforms. I'm looking forward to that. I'm also looking forward to say, uh, being able to set up audiences that are just continuously updated and fed to app platforms and things. So, so anything that gets us closer to sort of automating revenue, if, if we were going back to the discussion about like uh, the B2C world, I'm mm -hmm. looking forward to sort of B2B go-to-market becoming even more consumerized. Uh, I'm mm -hmm. excited about that. Um, I think even I think if I'm not happening. a millennial, <laughs> even even if I'm not a millennial, because I'm very much on their side in the sense that I I am like a person. I as a person, I prefer researching. I prefer trying. Yeah. I prefer. Um, I like that. Uh, yeah. So I'm looking forward to to that. Like uh, I don't see it as negative at all. I I'm sort of looking forward to that future. No, you're right. I think that that's pretty amazing. And as long as we understand that consumer as well, we can do things in marketing to really help, you know, put together campaigns that will work well for that type of consumer. Um, and I would also say that it's also something that just puts marketing firmly in the driving seat, right? If you look oh, at absolutely. Amazon, Amazon B2C, they don't have a lot of uh, salespeople, right? So it no. is in, in general, an automated go-to-market is a marketing driven go-to-market as yeah. I see it. Uh, so, so it's Absolutely. something that is putting um, more and more emphasis on the importance of, of, you know, all the different aspects of the discipline of marketing. Yeah. And speaking of Amazon as well, something I've noticed is a lot of marketing automation in there, which uh, I love seeing. So yeah, mm. one of my favorite tools, marketing yeah. automation. So um, yeah, for sure. Um, Last question. I love asking this question uh, because, yeah, you know, it's it's just nice to to chat to inspiring people that are out to change the world. Um, you know, they've come with great ideas. They've made them work. So, what gets you out of bed in the morning? What inspires you? So I think like a lot of the things we do, solving problems. Uh, I would say seeing what. I love is seeing customers being happy about using the product and seeing that it's actually doing some of what we intended it to do. 
so that we didn't just, you know, build something and nobody came, but, you know, yeah. people there, they're using it. So that inspires me. Of course, like, uh, I have a family. I love going, getting up to my family in the morning. Cool. So that definitely also helps, helps me get out of bed. But, uh, but from a business standpoint, this like seeing that that's the vision is materializing, uh, even mm-hmm. if it's, like, I think, uh, most startup founders would agree that it it always feels like it's too slow, but it's like uh, something is happening. There's more and more of it um, happening. Yeah, you definitely have a good purpose there because you're helping um, you know marketers get excited about doing the things that they're doing because they can finally prove that it works or it doesn't work, and they just need mm-hmm. to change it. Um, but yeah, there's definitely a purpose there, and I think it's exciting. So well done. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for chatting to me on SaaS Stories today. It was lovely to meet you. And um, yeah, I look forward to more chats in the in the future. Thank you, Joanna. It was great being on the show. Thanks for tuning in. This has been the SaaS Stories podcast brought to you by Hat Media, a nerdy marketing agency that has worked with some of the biggest global B2B technology brands. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. For even more resources, visit our website at hatmedia.com.au, where we share guides, ebooks, and webinars on all things marketing to help you grow. Until next time, happy sassing.